0: Five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. off. We have a liftoff. Hey, space friends. We will talk about space tourism this week. Laura Forslick is back. She just published a book called Becoming Offworldly that talks all about space tourism and the space tourism experience. Check out the link to the book in the episode notes. As an investor in space tourism, and hopefully, hopefully someday as a customer, I'm really excited about this one. Enjoy. Just as a reminder, if you enjoy the show, please leave us a review or rating on your favorite podcast app, such as Apple, so more people can find the podcast. Now, here are a couple of short messages from the sponsors. Then enjoy my conversation with Laura Fosse. My name is Raphael rodkin and I'm an investor and advisor to space companies. Just as a reminder, this podcast is for informational purposes only, and nothing should be taken as investment advice. This podcast is sponsored by NanoAvionics a satellite manufacturer and mission integrator. Their technologies enable many space companies worldwide to offer services that improve life right here on Earth, such as providing global connectivity, conducting Earth observation, or contributing to scientific discoveries. Check them out and also check out my episode with their CEO and co-founder. Sadly, I am not a rocket scientist, but I'm an alumnus of the International Space University. ISU offers a number of educational programs about space worldwide. Check them out at isunet.edu. Well, hello, everybody. It's very exciting today. It's actually the first time we have a repeat guest on the show, Laura Forsig. Welcome, Laura.
1: Thanks again for having me on.
0: I know. It's a pleasure. And tell us why you came back.
1: I want to introduce your audience to my brand new book that was just published this week becoming offworldly learning from astronauts to prepare for your spaceflight journey um, and I know that your audience has a, an interest in business so I'd love to speak to you about the business of commercial human spaceflight
0: oh we'll definitely do that Laura but let me tell you just from the experience of you know some of the people that I interact with in, in space business including our investors, this is actually a very emotional topic that people you know, are interested in as investors, but there's quite a few people who are also interested as potential customers. So I think we're going to discuss that from both perspectives.
1: Oh, this book is perfect for them because it is for people like me who do not have the financial means, but still the desire to go to space. And then people like maybe some of your listeners who actually have deposits down on one of the providers and might be thinking about how to prepare.
0: Yes, exactly. And we shall also tackle the question of, you know, what one could do if one maybe um, think, thinks that the prices are a little bit intimidating, um, because maybe, <laughs> maybe there are some options for those people too, for the rest of us, so to say. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> the ones of us who are not i wasn't going to say that one percent it's at the moment it's the 0.001 percent or something like that but we'll talk about well, the prices one in thing
1: i wanted to get across to your readers i might as well mention it now is it's not all billionaires there really is plenty of room for it to open up to uh the more general population and we have seen that in the past year
0: yes that, that is a good message that we will definitely um, delve in on. Okay, but let's start off here. What what, make you, what made you want to write a book on space tourism? You're obviously quite knowledgeable. I know you're quite knowledgeable on many topics in space. Why did you pick space tourism?
1: Oh, so I have always wanted to go to space. I'm sure many of your listeners can relate to that ever since I was a kid, right? But I never really wanted to go the government route. First off, I, I, I'm actually too short according to NASA's current standards. ESA actually has a, a lower height requirement, really? <laughs> but NASA, I'm not allowed to apply because
0: i'm too short what are the requirements sorry just to open the bracket here what is the height requirement Um, so
1: for right now um and i apologize i'm american so i don't know what it is in centimeters but uh, for right now five foot two inches is the minimum height and that's for for the current solicitation it changes every time i do believe um so i meet the education requirements i meet all these other requirements but nasa is looking for any reason to cut out, you know, potential candidates because they get thousands tens of thousands i think it was sure. 18,000 uh, applicants in the last solicitation and they only have room to accept a handful and so they're really looking to cut it down looking for the best of the best also if you look at government astronaut biographies it really truly is impressive you talked about intimidating praises. i i get intimidated by the biographies of the astronauts that are selected they're just really impressive and so for for a variety of reasons though like i never really felt that strong call for a nasa Uh, You know, I'm I'm American, so I would go through NASA to try to get that chance to go to space. Um, And for most other countries out there, they just don't even have that opportunity. You know, there's Canada, there's ESA, there's China and Russia, and there's just uh, India. There's only a few countries around the world that you can even apply to be a government astronaut. And for most of the rest of the world, for over three quarters of the world, there actually is no commercial or I'm sorry, government path. You have to look ahead to commercial opportunities opportunities. So that's where I really got interested in commercial space, not through you know a lot of the other ways that other people do through you know, satellites or earth observation. For me, it was how do I get myself up there? Um, you know, Whether it's suborbital or orbital or to the moon, the moon has always been my love because I am a planetary scientist with a background in lunar science. So for me, it was like, okay, how do I get myself to the moon? But I'll take anywhere. <laughs> I'm not picky. So I really wanted to write this book for people like me, who are the vast majority of people on this planet, who either, um, you know, don't have the ability to get to space or have been applying and rejected and applying and rejected through the government programs. Um, And so it's really a look ahead at, you know, it's no longer so such of a narrow gate it's a look ahead to the gate is opening it's the new era of commercial human space flight and yes there's still a lot of gate opening to do there's still a lot of people we still need to include Um, there's this term that's thrown around democratization of space Um, I don't use that term a lot because I think we have a long way to go to get there but that is the goal is to open up human spaceflight for whoever it is who wants to go
0: Yes. And like, like you're saying, that's a very long shot from sort of the ultra selective government processes. We just recently added, um, um a, an astronaut, uh, actually from South Korea called Soyeon Yi, the only Korean astronaut to our advisory board. And she told me she was chosen out of 36,000 applicants.
1: <laughs> she <laughs> is know. an impressive individual. She's one of the interviewees <laughs> in my book. So I interviewed, oh, she is. yeah, I interviewed I, 17 flown astronauts, plus four individuals who flew after i interviewed them plus a handful of others who are still waiting for their flights and she was one of the people who um, i interviewed for the book i, I wanted to get a, a culturally diverse rep- representation of the perspectives in the book
0: okay yeah we will we shall talk about um that one too i just want to sort of um ask a follow-up question one of the things you said so you said okay you partly wrote the book because you're interested in sort of commercial the commercial aspect and you didn't want to go down the government route but correct me if I'm wrong, isn't there also sort of like, an, like let's call it an in-between route, which is sort of government flights, but basically people who fly for almost for companies, right? Sort of like That's government. Contractors.
1: Right. Yeah. Ever since the early 1980s with uh, Charlie Walker flying um, through a McDonnell Douglas Corporation as a NASA astronaut, we've been flying people sponsored by companies, sponsored by um, other individuals. And so this really isn't necessarily a new concept. It's just really opening up to a much wider pool of people. And, and so even in the book, I have a chapter on science and space. And um, at least one of the people I interviewed for that chapter, Alan Stern, he's going to be flying through his employer, but he's also selected by NASA to fly as well. So he's not a NASA astronaut per se, but he's still mm-hmm. sponsored by both his employer and government. And so that's the kind of um, you know partnership that we could see moving forward, either um, not just individuals paying their own ways, but individuals being selected by government government, despite not being fully trained as government astronauts or individuals selected by their employer or individuals selected by a different corporation, whether they have, you know, Discovery Channel flying for a reality yes. TV show or something else.
0: Well, exactly. I was, I was thinking about that. So if we really believe that, you know, and I think both, you and I believe this to some extent that at some point in time, the commercial space industry is really going to take off and in, including in places like the moon, right? I mean, isn't it conceivable that besides the government astronauts and the, and the tourists, you will have some mining company wants to check out? out something on the moon they can't do it robotically and then you fly up there with the mining company or something like that.
1: Absolutely. So one of the interviewees in the book is Michael Lopez-Alegría, you might know him as mm-hmm. LA, yeah. and he um is a, a multiple flyer through NASA, but he's about to fly again through Axiom Space as an Axiom Space employee taking up three other private individuals. And so you might see that not just as someone should guide the way of private individuals, but someone to do some kind of work whether that is science or whether that's mining or some other types of repair or maintenance or crew work.
0: So that's actually um, a good example to delve in a little bit on so we can illustrate to the listeners who may not know what what some of these private missions look like. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that Axiom One mission?
1: Sure. So Axiom was a private company that got a contract to build a segment onto the International Space Station that will then disconnect from the ISS at the end of ISS Lifetime and become a free-flying commercial space station. And along with that initiative, they are also trying to um, build up a, a repertoire of um, private space missions, private astronaut missions is what NASA calls them. And so they were selected for the first two private astronaut missions that NASA is going to allow to the ISS, which is separate from what Russia does. Russia has been allowing private astronauts for almost 20 years now. Oh, I guess it has been over 20 years. And so NASA is sort of late on the ball here. But um, that first Axion mission, which is currently scheduled for late March. Um, hopefully that'll stay on track.
0: It got delayed, means, right? Uh, it was supposed to be end of February. Uh,
1: it was supposed to be uh, late last year. And then, it, you know, everything. Right. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm crossing my fingers that they'll go in March. Um, it's three private individuals who have never flown, have no uh, you know, prior spaceflight experience, plus a, a, a widely flown veteran astronaut, Mike L.A. Um, and they are going to go up there for, I, I forget, it's something like a week, eight days, something like that. Um, mm-hmm. And um, they just like previous uh, private astronauts who have flown to the ISS, they are going to do a variety of things depending on their interest and backgrounds. So some of them might want to do outreach or art, and I know they've published that they're going to do science. Um, but it's, it's individuals who pay their own way to Axiom to go up there. Um, and I, we've seen this, two of my interviewees in the book flew with uh, Space Adventures in the 2000s. And mm-hmm. so we've seen this happening now for quite some time. And I think it's going to become more common as you know, commercial space stations come on board. Axiom um, just announced yesterday that that they're going to have a special module specifically for movies. And so I think that we're going to see even more of that kind of diversification of the market where you have individuals going up for science, you have individuals going up for art or movie filming or whatever it happens to be that they have a desire to go to space. And it might not be the ISS, it might be future commercial space stations. Or to the moon.
0: Yes and we we'll, we'll talk about the moon that's very that's that's a very exciting topic but let's stay in, in orbit for a while some of these missions and the orbital missions and people you talked about the orbital missions like what are some of their you know expectations um, that they have if they haven't flown yet and then maybe for the ones that have flown you know, how do the expectations compare to the experience?
1: Yeah, it really depends on the type of spaceflight that they're going to do. And I go into this a little in the book where if you're going on a suborbital flight with Virgin Galactic or Blue Origin, Mm -hmm. it's a very quick training uh, period. And so people who are selected, they might only have a a few weeks or a couple of months to actually prepare themselves to think what are they going to do when they get up there. And they only have a few minutes to actually perform what it is they're going to do, whether that is a a quick science experiment or just hanging hanging out at the window and staring out, you know, at the beauty of earth or whatever it happens to be. But if you're going up to orbit, if you're going to the ISS or free flying around with dragon, um, you're going to be training for, for a while. Inspiration4 trained for about six months. Um, the mm-hmm. space adventures, private astronauts tend to train for about two years. Um, you know, so there's a wide range there, but they're getting a lot of training. Um, and I go through an uh, interview in the book with, um, one of the representatives from Space Adventures who um, goes through this extensive checklist of everything that you might want to think of if you're going to go up in space for orbit, you know, all the equipment you might want to do, all the skills you might want to learn, such as photography, or you know, all the kinds of uh, equipment that you might want to use that belongs to another country and you need to mm-hmm. get permission to use that equipment. And so it's a long checklist just depending on what your motivations are for going up there. And the spaceflight providers and facilitators are going to help help you to determine what it is you need and what you need to think about and what you need to prepare. And one thing in the book I wanted to really put into readers' heads is it's not just physical preparation. Yes, you need to get fit, Mm. you know, pass certain medical requirements, Um, depending, you know, we just had a 90 year old William Shatner fly to space with Blue Origin. So Mm. it really just depends. But um, aside from those physical, uh, training that you might have heard of the the analogs of you know flying on jets or going on yeah. a parabolic microgravity flight. Aside from those, there's also the mental and emotional and spiritual preparation that you might want to consider. It's risky, right? You're going to put your life on the line, so you need to consider your own mortality and how that affects your family and friends. Or there's the the this price shock, you know, the sticker shock of am I spending all of this money in a good way, and how do I get the most out of the money I'm spending? how do I get the most out of my sponsor's money? How do I get that science done to make sure that it's worth it? If I go up there for a few minutes, I need to get this science accomplished. How do I do that? You know, it's a lot of mental and emotional preparation as well as physical.
0: The people that you talk to who have already flown orbitally, like what, what did they say about their mental experience? I mean, was it, what they expected? Did they prepare in any way? Was there something that surprised them?
1: Yeah, the first half of the book is covering surprises that space uh, flyers, whether it's government flyers or commercial flyers. And again, I, I interviewed two people who flew a space adventures. Their mental preparations, and 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 not only that, but their surprises. So for for some people, you really cannot even prepare for um, the the view of the Earth or the way that it makes you feel to see the Earth as one interconnected. body body, getting used to the three dimensions as you use them in space where there is no up and down uh, in a different way that we use three dimensions here on Earth. So there's so many different ways that flown astronauts um, experienced space that they just didn't expect. And that was something I really wanted to cover in the book is what, are, what were those surprises and, and how might a future flyer prepare for those surprises?
0: Yeah. And, and on, on the dimensions and the up and down. Uh, so I, I know that's not mental, it's physical, but uh, let me ask anyway. So I was surprised I was speaking to to one of the um, a space flight providers. And they actually told me that a significant number of um, of astronauts, uh, including government ones, actually experienced space sickness, which I didn't know. Is that something that people are generally prepared for and expect, you think?
1: It is completely unknown who's going to experience it and who doesn't. And about half, if not more, do experience it for at least a day, sometimes as long as a few days. And one of the best ways to uh, sort of get over that is to use medication. But I, I even mentioned in the book that not everyone does. Uh, some people just forgo the medication. And so, um, different perspectives on how you might prepare. Um, and really it's just allowing yourself that time. If you're going up for more than you know, a few days, you need to just allow yourself that extra time to get used to it. Mm-hmm. And so you mentioned that microgravity is physical, not mental, but it's actually both. Mm-hmm. So you have the, the space, adaption, sickness, but you also yeah. have the perspective change and, and the ways that you move. And I'm, a few of the interviewees talked about how they didn't even realize how well they were adjusting to microgravity until a new crew came on board and they watched the new crew fumble around. And they it, it, it's almost like humanity adapts to the new environment without even realizing it, we're just so very adaptable. And some of that is physical, but some of that is also mental.
0: Yeah. And then, by the way, in terms of the, I guess it's sort of related to preparation, but uh, it's actually the criteria, right? And, you know, for example, the height criteria we're talking about for the, the, the private people, the people who pay, and in, in the case of Axiom, correct me if I'm wrong, I think it's $55 million, so it's quite a lot of money. Um, do they get any break on the criteria or is it exactly the same criteria as for the government government guys?
1: Oh, no. So the private commercial space like flight providers will, will will determine their own criteria, their own physical criteria. One of the people I interviewed in the book who is a future Axiom customer, he is an elderly. And so um, just like how um, they're going to have to put him through physical, and, and he has been going through physicals, and and they're, they're going to make sure that he passes a minimum, you know, physical and mental requirement, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. Axiom sets that just as other spaceflight providers, whether that's SpaceX or whether that's Rose Cosmos with the space adventures or whether that's, um, you know, the, the suborbital, and the blue origin or Virgin Galactic, they're going to set their own criteria. And some of it might just be very basic. I know when I was undergoing ground-based training for suborbital research flights, um, it was just a basic physical. That's mm-hmm. all. I just had to prove that I was healthy, uh, healthy enough. And it, it might have changed since then, but I, I believe they're really trying to open it up. So, for example, um, Haley Arsenault, who flew with SpaceX through yeah. Inspiration4, um, she was the first person to publicly fly with a prosthetic. So NASA astronauts have flown with prostheses, but um, it mm-hmm. hasn't really been public before. Um, and and she was able to withstand high levels of G's on her mm-hmm. her prosthesis, which is pretty amazing to to figure out. And it's just, we Mm -hmm. haven't allowed that in the past because government spaceflight has been so exclusive. But the point of commercial spaceflight is to open it up to other people to allow for um, differences in in bodies and differences in disabilities. Um, And and, and that's something I really touch upon in the last chapter of the book is making sure we really truly look to see who we're opening it up to uh, geographically, uh, socioeconomically, and physically with with all the different hidden and, in, and uh, visible disabilities that are out there, um, we really want to make sure that we can be as inclusive as possible as we move forward.
0: Yeah, it's really quite fascinating, isn't it? And I'm sure you noticed, but the, the latest um, ASA astronaut, so the European astronaut selection, right, and uh, which doesn't happen nearly as often as the US one, unfortunately, but they specifically want to integrate um, some handicapped people in the astronaut corps. I'm, I'm sure you saw that.
1: Yeah, I included that in, in the last chapter, the, the specifics that they are looking for, and it's still very mm-hmm. limited, but they are looking for someone either short in stature or having has a limb deficiency, um, mm-hmm. which I think is fantastic that they're taking that opportunity to really open that up. Um, there's another uh, group I mentioned in the final chapter that is flying people with disabilities who, um, you know, fly on a zero G flight, a, a parabolic flight yeah. uh, that, you know, th- they are not just flying for the fun of it. They're flying so that they can prove that they can and to offer suggestions on how to make minor accommodations for future space flights. And I, I think that's really useful because as we move forward and we want to increase the representation of who goes to space, you know, it's not just going to be the the elite of the elite, the best of the best. It's going to be all of humanity, right? We want to give everyone the opportunity who wants to, to be able to fly, just like how um, pretty much anyone who wants to can fly in an airplane today. Um, you know, it, it, there are two futures that I outline in the book. One future is that space flight becomes as common as air flight. Another future is that space flight remains uh, very risky and and, and elusive and, and limited, like uh, Uh, you know, flying or climbing Mount Everest, for example. And so I think space flight will probably be somewhere in between, but I'd like it to be more like just hopping on a plane.
0: Yeah. And and just finishing up on the sort of the handicap point, I I, I do think it's fascinating, right? Because if you imagine somebody who is, let's say, paraplegic, so they don't have the use of their legs. If you're on the ISS, that's completely fine, right? Because you just basically use your arms.
1: Yeah. There are so many ways that we can really accommodate people who have disabilities. I mean, I've got two children who have disabilities. And so um, I I, realized in now how much ableism is in our society, that is really easy to correct if we just go and put those accommodations out there and realize that in some ways, spaceflight can be a lot easier on certain people with certain disabilities than others.
0: Yeah. So we've talked a lot about sort of orbital space flights and the Axiom One mission. We did briefly mention already suborbital flights. Do you just want to give us the summary on the, on the suborbital flights?
1: Sure. So right now, there are two spaceflight providers that are leading suborbital human spaceflight. Um, so Virgin Galactic and Blue Origin both flew high profile flights last year, Mm -hmm. Blue Origin was the first and has been the first so far to fly three uh, uh, private flights that are flying paying customers. Virgin Galactic has not yet actually flown paying customers, but Virgin Galactic's flight in July does have the notable uh, distinction of having the first human tended suborbital science experiment ever Mm -hmm. done, Mm -hmm. which I just think is very exciting because I am a scientist. (laughs) And so um, you can see how both companies are taking different approaches, but also um, offering the same kinds of experiences you know, very different vehicles, but both offer that beautiful view of Earth, both offer a few minutes of microgravity, Um, you both offer a ride of a lifetime. Um, You know, it's it's very interesting to see, and it will be more interesting to see how these two companies market themselves and what uh, markets they go after, whether it is the the high-profile tourists, like, um, you know, William Shatner or a famous football player or, or Wally Funk, Wally Funk, was one of the ones Mm -hmm. I interviewed in my book before and after her space flight um, because she did not know when I first interviewed her that she would be chosen for that first Blue Origin flight. Mm -hmm. And so these very high-profile individuals on Blue Origin, along with paying customers, you know, regular everyday people, like the first 18-year-old to fly to space, for example. He was the very first paying customer to fly on a suborbital flight. Technically, his father paid, but, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, And and then you've got Virgin Galactic, which is also going after, you know, high-wealth individuals. But um, they have yet to actually fly those first ones. So the Italian Air Force is is looking to fly this year with Virgin Galactic, and it'll be really interesting to see how these two companies um, continue on both in terms of their operability, like how how they they operate into their cadence and and where they operate, as well as who gets to fly on them.
0: Yeah, and those suborbital flights, I think, are basically Virgin Galactic is four hundred fifty thousand dollars, if I remember correctly, which they actually increased the price last year up from two hundred fifty thousand dollars. Blue Origin, I think, is still not disclosed, but I think it's around the same the same level.
1: It's probably just a little bit higher um, based on the fact that they started out with that auction and that auction winner, who has not yet flown, um, and that's for charity too, so take this with a grain of salt, but he paid uh, $28 million plus fees for that flight and then they're going to the, the auction runner-ups. So one of the people I interviewed in the book, Dylan Taylor, he recently flew in December. He mm-hmm. was one of the runner-ups in mm-hmm. the auction and again, not disclosed about how much you paid, but um, it's probably a little higher than Virgin Galactic at this point.
0: Oh, sure, for sort of the first flights and the sort of auctions for charity. Yeah, I meant sort of on a on a steady state. But I guess it's still it is a significant difference, right, to the orbital flights. So um, again, if you take the Axiom Axiom price, which is which is still officially at fifty five million dollars, it's basically um, yeah, it's a ninety nine percent discount if you go suborbitally. Although I guess if you look at it on a sort of per minute basis. Um, it'll look quite differently.
1: Yes, per minute basis, orbital is cheaper, but it is more than an order of magnitude more expensive to go to orbit. You're looking at, you know, half a million dollars approximately for vir- for Virgin Galactic yeah. or probably Blue Origin versus, you know, 50-ish million dollars Two for orbital. I think it might be a little less if you go through Space Adventures than if you go through Axiom. Yeah. Um, another one is just going through SpaceX directly. So mm-hmm. it, it was approximately $200 million for that Uh, four seats of the Inspiration4 mission to go for three days around orbit in in a a SpaceX Dragon. And then we do not know how much was paid for that CIS lunar trip on a future starship. Um, You know, that still remains a mystery. And that um, also changes in terms of how many people are going to be on board. So he he booked the entire flight and not necessarily by seat. So we're just going to have to see how these prices play out. The ideal is that it will become less expensive over time as the flights become more profitable and more regular. Um, yeah. But right now we're in the infancy of the industry. So prices are actually increasing and there is no incentive for these companies to drop prices because the oh, yeah. pent up yeah. demand is there.
0: Well that's that's exactly right, Laura. I'm mean, I mean sort of speaking wearing my investor hat for a moment. So that's why we invested in space tourism as well. Um, although you will point out that it's technically not space via um, space perspective. And we can talk about balloons in a second, but it's um like you said in the foreseeable future there's just going to be a supply demand mismatch right because there's just very few ways to get near space or into space and there's actually quite a few wealthy people in the world
1: you're absolutely right and 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 of course, I wanted to, again, point out that it's not just wealthy people who are flying to space. They are also mm-hmm. um, sponsoring other individuals. Yeah, sponsor. yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So um, it, that is something that I think has been misrepresented in the news, especially last year with that billionaires in space that kind of narrative that we saw. It's going to be a lot more regular individuals who at this point are lucky, are fortunate. They have connections. They're either being sponsored by a billionaire or sponsored by a, a company. Um, but it's going to be opening up. Um, and I'm looking forward to seeing how those uh, seats get opened up even more to people like you and me. Um, so right now, you really do have to have the right connections or the really good fortune of winning a contest or whatever it had to be if you do not have the financial means to fly yourself. But um, you know, I, this industry is so new. I really do think that it's going to change quite a bit over the next decade or two.
0: I mean, let me let me ask you maybe this question: if we if we could pick people, let's say we had a pool of money like you, you Laura, and Rafael, and, and we could sponsor people like who should go? Who should well, that's soon?
1: an excellent question, and there are organizations that are doing that, right? So, Space for Humanity, for example, is mm-hmm. one that is trying to do just that, and they and they pick someone who, um, again, is from a country that's never seen a, anyone fly in space. There's just so many people who have been left out of the opportunities to even fly. Um, you know, not even accounting for their their backgrounds, their educational backgrounds, or or um, their their financial means, and so mm-hmm. it it really is uh, very limited right now. And so so we feel like we have that scarcity mindset, who should be allowed to fly? I think everybody should be allowed to fly. And I want to get past that scarcity mindset. We're not anywhere close to that yet, but that's where I want to see the industry going, is that it's no longer, you know, who's limited, who, who's going to take that limited seat. It's okay, who wants to? And whoever wants to should get that opportunity.
0: Yeah, I think I think that's right. What I mean is, I think that th- there's one argument that in the meantime, while we can't send everybody that we, how can I say this, we sent the right, I mean, th- these days we have many sorts of people we call influencers, right? I guess there's, all, there's there have always been influencers, right? Just the media change, but I guess we want to maybe send the right sort of influencers, right? Who can kind of spread the right message, if that makes sense.
1: I think that the people who have flown so far have been really good at that. The people who want to be out there and influence, and I do go in the the book with the interviews of why people want to fly, and for some of them, it really is you know I don't know if you want to call it influencers, but it's it's mm-hmm. outreach, it's inspiration yeah. of other people um, who who are coming from uh, different geological background, you know, different different. geological regions that do not have those kinds of inspirational figures, or maybe um, it's a woman where uh, women in that particular culture have been oppressed historically, and they want to show that that a woman can find space. You know, there's just Mm -hmm. those so many different examples, but there's also, you know, different reasons like art. I interviewed two people who are artists who talked about how they wanted, you know, they want that opportunity to see earth in a way that will help them with their art, or, or you know, even just the art of designing spacesuits and space habitats. Um, mm-hmm. So there's really a. Uh... Endless reasons why someone might have fl- want to fly, and I don't think it's up to you or me or the spaceflight providers to, to say which ones get priority. Um, there's a book that I reference in the introductory chapter by a colleague of mine, um, it, it, "See You in Orbit" it, it, ally Alan Ludwig, and he goes into the history of um, how NASA got to the point of choosing a teacher in space, and um, you, know, you know, there were debates about: you, do you choose an educator? Do you choose a journalist? Do you choose a, an influencer? Do you choose politicians? Who gets yeah. to fly? And again, it's all the scarcity mindset. I think that there are endless reasons why anybody should be able to fly in space. And who's to say what reason is better than another?
0: Okay. Okay. Let me just be devil's advocate here. While we can't have everybody fly, we have to make sure that we maintain public support for space, right? So, you know, NASA has enough budgets and all of that in other countries. Um, and so we really need to kind of spread the space message that space is a good thing. Um, I guess that's why we need the influencers, right? Why we cannot fly everybody yet?
1: I think that's a great reason why you should fly because you've got you know your your circle of connections. You've got your podcast. You Thanks, can be, you've got your course, right? You can be someone who um, is an influencer, but that's not the only reason, right? We don't know who the vast you know millions of people are who fly in in airspace. So yes, it'll uh, get to that point where there will be anonymous people flying in space, and it's not up to the public to decide who that is.
0: Yeah, no, fu- fu- fully agreed. By the way, we we're talking about suborbital versus orbital correct me if I'm wrong I can't think of anybody who has done both right
1: oh that's an excellent question not on purpose so there was that okay (laughs) Okay, so there 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 have been people. Oh no no wait 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 oh
0: I I'm just I'm 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 stupid I'm just not going back and find finding yeah yeah historically Shepherd, there right. have
1: been like you know John Glenn he flew you know and then there was that um, aborted Russian mission where technically yes. he flew suborbitally um, but off the top of my head there there's been no commercial
0: no, no uh,
1: customer um, that has flown both suborbital and orbital
0: yes. But but to I'm, get
1: back I... to your point, actually, about inspiring, there, there are people that I spoke to who um, either have flown or will fly that do talk about wanting to go up there for the right reasons to make sure that they're doing it right in the beginning, you know, making sure that they as pioneers are opening up that gate that I talked about. Um, and so you have people like Jared Eisman. Jared um, was the sponsor of Inspiration4, mm-hmm. and he talked about how he really, really, really wanted to get this mission right so he could uh, inspire other people and open up the paths for other people to follow. And and then you've got Dylan Taylor, who um, has that buy one, give one um, Mm -hmm. philosophy that he just initiated um, with his flight in December, where he took the money that he spent on a Blue Origin ticket, and he's also giving that equivalent money to uh, charities or organizations that he thinks is is worthy to sponsor. So I think it's really important in the beginning as we're we're trying to get that good message publicly um, to to show that, yes, we, we do do have really good reasons and and william shatner is not someone that i I interviewed in the book but i included his words because they were just so poetic when he landed the Mm -hmm. the ways that he was inspired by uh, the environmentalism uh you know mentality of the earth atmosphere is so fragile and we need to protect it which is a very common uh overview effect kind of mentality that people come home with Um, Mm -hmm. so there are so many different ways that we can send all kinds of people up and have that kind of positive message on the way back
0: Mm -hmm. and for for those listeners who don't know do I want to just give us the, the summary of the, the overview effect. And I, I saw Frank White even wrote the forward to your book, I think.
1: Yeah, I'm very grateful for Frank White for um, writing the forward to the book. He's the author of several books, including the overview effect. He coined the term. It's a cognitive shift in how people perceive the planet or their, their lives um, after their space flights. And and for him, for Frank White, he actually was inspired during a plane ride, uh, you know, a, a air flight. Um, so you don't mm-hmm. even necessarily need to be in space. And not every everyone is going to have this overview effect and not everyone is going to experience experience it in the same way. But each person has the opportunity to be able to have this change of thought or have this new perspective by seeing earth from above as an interconnected planet. For some people, it's it's the environmentalism movement um, where they recognize that earth is um, completely (laughs) uh, our reason for existing, right? We've got the blackness of space and we've got our planet and that is home and that is life. Um, For other people, It's the way that we humans are affecting it. So Richard Garriott, who I interviewed in the book, talked Mm -hmm. about how he saw humans touching Earth everywhere, land, Earth, and sea, Uh, I mean, uh, sky and sea. And so, you know, it's all very interconnected of the way the air currents move, the way the water currents move. And for Mm -hmm. some people, it's more like they want to go visit the places that they saw from space, where they they saw it from a distance, and now they want to go explore it, or the way that humanity is interconnected. Nushe Ansari is one of the people I interviewed in the book Mm -hmm. who grew up in war-torn Iran, during the revolution and she talked about how it was really touching for her to see just this is home we are one peoples we are one earth why are we fighting on earth but what is the point of all the conflict on earth and each person's going to have a different perspective and it might be very shocking i think william shatner was shocked at his perspective when he landed back Mm -hmm. after his blue orton flight um some people might not have any kind of cognitive shift at all and it's just going to be really dependent on each person it it doesn't not seem to be dependent on time or altitude um Thank you. the yeah. cat And I'm looking forward to the the sociology that comes out of uh, studying um, commercial astronauts after they've flown to see how this shift changes their lives or if it changes their lives.
0: Mm -hmm. With regard to the overview effect, which is something I think most professional astronauts have reported, and as you said, some of the private space explorers too. Did you see any sort of difference, um, for example, between the orbital and suborbital guys, or also um, like any cultural differences between people from different cultures?
1: I don't think we have enough data. So I'm going back to my science hat here, where I'm a physical scientist, not a social scientist, but I really don't think we have enough data yet to be able to really say if there's a difference orbital versus suborbital, or if mm. there's a difference in cultures. It does not seem to be dependent on uh, orbital or suborbital or on culture, but who knows, we might find something once we have higher numbers. And again, I'm really looking forward to those studies.
0: Okay. That actually, that's, that's a very good point. That sort of having not enough data, I'm just going to use that as a segue for another question I wanted to ask. Another thing we actually arguably don't have enough data on is the safety track record of some of the currently being used. Um, And and, and you mentioned sort of safety and the fear of death, um, like 20 minutes ago, how important, how often does the safety aspect come in? How often, uh, sorry, how often did it come up in your conversations? How much are people thinking about that?
1: Yeah, this is definitely a risky business, right? And so people need to be aware of the fact that they are putting their lives on the line. Um, We often don't think about it when we're doing risky things like driving in a car, uh, but when Mm -hmm. it comes to something unusual, like strapping yourself to a rocket, most people are thinking about it. Um, Not everybody, not everyone has, the same uh, perspective in terms of mortality and and risk. But um, at least in the United States, you have to sign away waivers to say that you understand that you might die on these flights and it's not going to be the fault necessarily of the space flight provider. It's just inherently risky. Um, And so when it comes to commercial space flight, price and risk seem to be the top things that come to mind. And for for a large segment of the population, um, price isn't even a a concern. (laughs) So uh, for, for those special people, who are not me. uh, It's really the the risk and the experience of it. And, um, you know, for some people like Dylan Taylor, after he came back, he mentioned that he wasn't worried about the risk at all, because he was just worried about it might cancel and that they might have to abort. Um, He wasn't worried about, you know, the death aspect necessarily. He had came to peace with that. Um, Whereas William Shatner talked about how he was scared to death and and he really did think that he might die on that flight. And so um, as the track records get built up, and of course we're going to have accidents, there are going to be fatalities. We know this just because of history. This is um, yeah. going to be something that we need to deal with. And we don't know yet how the market is going to react, how the government regulators are going to react, how the state providers are going to react. But just like how any other mode of transportation, any other risky adventure tourism that is out yeah. there, you know, it, it's something to come to grips with, but not something to stop the industry.
0: Yeah, I know. And, 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 and you're, of course, right. If we're uh, talking about, for example, adventure tourism, I mean, you know, I've been down in Antarctic and up to the North Pole. And I remember like being up the North Pole and there was a Russian guard with me with an extremely high caliber rifle, because as he said, because of the bears and... <laughs> And another time I was um, uh, at Everest base camp and talking to the climbers and they were telling me the statistic, statistically, the death rate above base camp, when you go further uh, towards the top of Everest is it's above 3%, which is really oh. quite significant if you think about it. And people do it every year, right? So I guess as long as people are conscious about it, um, it's going to happen.
1: Yeah, I think that it's a mentality uh, decision, right? Each person's uh-huh. going to have their different perspective of what risk they're willing to take. And yeah. for some people that's going to be, you know, a, a willing risk. I would, sign myself up. I wouldn't sign myself up today to clarify. (laughs) I, I, think I assume I that's, because you more, that's
0: because you have smoke, small. I would set yes, right. myself
1: up and i would come to terms with that, with my family, with my husband. Yeah. I, I, it's something that each person needs to decide for themselves. What's worth that risk. And I think that progressing humanity forward into the stars and me getting that personal experience to be able to do that is worth the risk.
0: Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about another couple of um, types of space tourism. Um, the one I'm, let's, let's talk about the moon first. You mentioned you'll love the moon. Um, we have, as you mentioned, one flight already booked. As you said, uh, no officially disclosed price. Um, I think we can triangulate from, you know, a few numbers that it's sort of in the mid hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, Yusaku Mezawa from Japan on the Starship on a circumlunar Apollo 8 type mission. How feasible you think something like that is? And um, h- how do you see moon tourism evolving?
1: It is definitely feasible, but it is not feasible in 2023, as mm-hmm. they had been saying. Um, but we're going to see Starship come online and if not Starship, then other vehicles in the future that are going to have this capability. And of course, Starship is already planning to do government missions to land on the moon. So I really do think it's feasible for there to be a commercial mission around the moon in the near future with uh, SpaceX Starship. Um, And the interesting thing that we're going to have to see is that mix between private customers, uh, you know, the the people sponsored by the financier, Mm -hmm. um, along with the crew. Because for that mission, there is envisioned to be crew. And for those who don't know, it's called Dear Moon or Dear Moon Project. Mm -hmm. Um, Initially, he wanted to take up artists with him. And now he's opened it up to all creators and and hasn't finally announced the the finalists uh, for that mission yet. I applied and I assume I'm rejected since I have not gotten a call. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So um, we're just going to have to wait to see who he brings along. But then it's also envisioned that there's going to be SpaceX crew that accompanies him. And who is that going to be? Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that it's really feasible to see these types of mixed missions go up where it's private individuals with a crew, maybe even future mixed government uh, commissions, Um, although that's nowhere near anywhere close. But we see this already with ISS. So I see no reason why we wouldn't see it with the moon in the future. Once we get those missions established, once once we have these moon bases that are envisioned, (laughs) I really do think that um, it'll be a mix of government and commercial, just like we're seeing happening on the ISS.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then looking a little bit further, I mean, so, so this is this is as i said a circumlunar mission where you fly around the moon which is already very exciting i think i assume landing on the moon is a uh, quite a few years further out because of the additional complexities right
1: complexities and money and priorities as well so um spacex has been contracted to do that artemis 3 landing which is currently scheduled for 2025 although i wouldn't bet money on that date um but you know it's sometime in the next you know several years we're going to see you know nasa astronauts return to the surface of the moon and it's envisioned that nasa and, and um, partner astronauts will keep returning um, through Artemis 5 and beyond is, is the current plan. Um, and so once we get that cadence established of government missions landing on the moon, and it might not be only SpaceX, there are other competitors mm-hmm. such as Blue Origin um, that want to land human landers on the surface of the moon. And that's not even counting the Chinese-Russian uh, yeah. the missions that want to begin sometime in the 2030s. And so it's, it's completely feasible to think that in the future, there might be a Mix. But for right now, just because of priorities, it'll be focused on government. Yeah. Uh, government's the the one that's giving the money right now, and so yeah. unless there's some other private individual who's going to pay for a lunar landing and they want to do that like now, <laughs> I don't see that priority shifting. But it's definitely going to happen in the
0: future. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I just feel like that um, what I meant by a different complex is just things like life support systems and spacesuits, which you probably don't want to test on tourists first, You <laughs> probably leave it to the professionals. I'm That's a
1: really good point. There are a lot of commercial companies out there building spacesuits. Uh, you know, SpaceX has their white, cool looking spacesuits. Um, each spaceflight company has their own take on life support and spacesuits and and all the ways that they can really make uh, commercial customers uh, feel like they belong and or, or even do the science that they want to do. And they, you know, whether or not that needs an EVA or not for um, NASA missions to the International Space Station, there is no EVA allowed. There's no spacewalking on any of the Axiom missions because it's just not allowed through NASA, but Russia is allowing it. So Russia, if you go through, you know, Roscosmos, you could potentially do a commercial EVA, although it's never been done but I'm looking forward to that day. Um, So that's like the first step. And then we can think in the future, how that might be extended to lunar missions or Martian missions or, you know, wherever it is that we want to take people.
0: I I forgot to ask you. So, I mean, what if something happens, something goes wrong, you know, and, and I don't mean like the rocket exploding and you're kind of dead right away. Let's say you did some like medical emergency. Did you know what's, what would happen? I mean, I mean, even on the ISS, I guess, if there was some real emergency, then basically um, what would you do? You could take the Soyuz lifeboat, I suppose, but is your health insurance going to pay for that?
1: We just had a Russian uh, film crew go up, uh, yeah. a, a filmmaker and an actress go up for this sort of concept, right? What happens if you have a medical emergency in space? And yeah. and so that inspiration for a mission did take up Haley Arsmoo, who's a a physician's assistant. Yeah. Um, so they did have a medical personnel on that mission, but it's not a requirement. And it will be interesting to see, you know, what happens if there is a medical emergency or is there going to be a standard for having someone who's medically trained go up on these missions? Yeah. It's not an issue for a suborbital flight. They're too yeah. quick. Yeah,
0: sure. It's very but, uh,
1: <laughs> I think that orbital flights might just have a different perspective or or beyond, I should say, anywhere that we choose to go for longer than a day.
0: Yeah, no, exactly. Because but then if, if you're on the ISS, you're sort of, I mean, it depends on the exact orbital dynamic. Dynamics, but you're sort of a few hours, uh, quite a few hours, actually, from medical care, um, full, full-scale full medical care. I guess on the moon, you're several days away from full-scale medical care, right?
1: And that's the whole concept of living and working in space on the ISATS or in lower orbit um, to figure out how that we do this. And we do have now decades of experience that we can translate, uh, you know... Th- the Russians uh, have been doing this for quite a long time, um, that the Americans are, are you know, we we have this experience, but I think the two co- countries combined have extensive experience learning how to live and work in space. It's just slightly different if you're farther away. So we've got longer missions to the moon or even longer missions to Mars. We're just going to have to extend that experience and learn how to adapt a new environment.
0: Yeah, I think we have to, fig- we have to figure this out somehow. It, it's funny. I was about 10 days ago, I wasn't um, doctor. At Spacecom in Orlando, and on a panel with Sam Simani from from NASA, and we are talking about this. And I was asking, I was telling Sam this this famous story from the Russian and the Soviet Antarctica station in the 60s, where the only physician got appendicitis and he had to self-operate. <laughs> oh my!
1: I'll have to read up on that story.
0: You, did, you didn't know that? I did not know that. Oh, look it up. It's fascinating. It's literally like Murphy's law, right? The only trained guy gets appendicitis. So that I'm assuming, like you know, I'm, 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 I'm envisioning like the Soviet guy having some sips of vodka and taking out the scalpel and, you know, <laughs> you go from there. <laughs> so I was throwing that at Sam and I was like, Sam, what is something ha- similar happens in space? And Sam was like, ah, I'm not going to take anybody with an appendix, <laughs> which I thought it was cheating. You know, I thought, <laughs> I thought we have so to one thing I like out. to talk about
1: in my, in my, uh, my business is that anybody can work in the space industry so this is a good example of we need doctors in the space industry we need flight surgeons we need people who are medically trained not just engineers
0: yes 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 okay um so we talked about the moon we talked orbital. we talked suborbital um let's briefly touch upon the balloons you know the balloons who go um they say to the edge of space um what what do you think about the balloons
1: i would love to go on, on one of those high altitude balloons so there are several companies uh that are trying to go up uh with people on these uh, gondolas essentially that mm-hmm. will go up not to space, but high enough where you see the blackness of the sky and the curvature of the earth. Um, it's just about, you know, 30 to 40 kilometers up, whereas space is somewhere between 80 and 100 kilometers. And I go into that in the book if you want to learn about the debate of where space begins. But I would yeah. still love to go up. You're not weightless because you're not in free fall, but you do get to see that beautiful view of the earth. And so we talked about the overview effect. Maybe yeah. those uh, near space customers customers will get that overview effect just by being that high.
0: Yeah. And I, I really, I mean, I'm probably talking my book here, right? Because we invested in one of these companies based perspective, but I'm really excited that it's, it's another way of making it more accessible, right? Because it's not a rocket. It's, it's basically no, almost no pre, uh, perceptible G forces. You know, I could send my sort of 80 year old parents on that, I think, and you're still getting a similar experience.
1: Yes. And so it's, it's very calm, not only for science experiments, but again, for, pe- for people. Um, and so they talk about, you know, having wedding parties or, you Mm -hmm. know, whatever it may be Mm -hmm. that you want to fly up there. And I think that's a really great business. And I'm really excited to see that happen. It's been in the works for quite some time with companies like uh, Worldview, for example, Mm -hmm. that spun off uh, the space perspective and and other companies out there, too. Some in Spain, uh, you know, one in Japan. There's around the world, there's companies that are trying to envision the way that we can take people higher and higher and higher. And again, it could be for just, you know, having a, a party or it could be for science or I mean, there's just endless reasons why you might want to go up high above you know in the stratosphere um and I'm really interested to see how that compares to you know if someone wants to go on multiple of these flights how you know, high altitude balloon and then suborbital and then orbital and to see how that experience differs um and and I sign myself up you know I volunteer to be the kind of person who will tell you how that might differ if someone's listening and they want to sponsor me
0: yeah I I must admit I have put down a deposit
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
0: but, but only you
1: tell me how it is <laughs>
0: Because it is refundable and uh you know the, the the balance that still needs to be paid is still quite intimidating but i do like i do really like the um the idea of it as well um okay so gosh we've been talking for almost an hour here we could go on for another of yours i'm sure is there anything else sort of we didn't touch upon that that that's in the book that you think is is worth mentioning
1: um so one of the things i want readers to really take away is that it's opening up to just about anyone right so there are a lot of the people that are listening right now who have been excluded because they, they um, have applied and have been rejected or they don't live in a country where they can apply. And, and so I want them to keep hope that this is changing. You know, it, in a way it's changing slowly because we've been waiting for decades, but in another way, it's changing very, very quickly. Last year showed us just how quickly this whole suborbital industry, not to mention that inspiration formation that almost came out of nowhere, it changes so quickly. So just imagine how it's gonna be 5, 10, 15 years from now and don't discount the opportunity that you or someone you know. Is is going to fly. And I love the fact that with each mission that's announced, I know somebody who's about to fly. And I'm like, yes, I love that. So as more and more people get to know other people who've flown, whether it's a colleague or a neighbor or a friend or, or even just someone who's from their country or culture, that, and that's really unusual, um, mm-hmm. it's going to become more real for people. And it's really going to touch more and more lives. And I'm really looking forward to the day when it's no longer billionaires in space narrative, but it's, hey, I'm going on this great adventure. Do you want to come with me? Or I'm going to go do this science experiment for work. Wish me luck. You know, it's it's changing and it's going to change so much in the coming decades.
0: Yeah. I mean, what, what do you think? is the most likely scenario, what it's going to be like, like you said, 10, 15 years from now.
1: We're going to see a lot more people flying. Um, So only a little over 600 people have flown in space ever. And so that number is going to double, triple, you know, in the coming decades, Uh, you know, probably just, you know, in the coming decades, single, um, we're going to see so many more people, hundreds, if not thousands of people fly. Um, it's not all going to be in one spaceflight provider either. It's going to be diversified. So I'm really looking forward to seeing how the different people um, experience the different experiences of you know, flying on a space plane versus a traditional rocket, suborbital versus orbital versus a cislunar trip around the moon.
0: Yeah. Do you think there's any chance uh, it might ever become like a mundane experience? And what I mean by that is, um, as you know, there are some companies, including SpaceX, which have you know long-term plans, which uh, for point-to-point suborbital hypersonic flights Right. You go from, I don't know, New York to London uh, or something like that, um, suborbitally, hypersonically, you would arguably be high enough that you would have. Um, that nice view of the earth. I don't know what these vehicles would have windows at every seat, probably not, but then maybe you would have cameras and then projected inside. I don't know. Um, do you think if something like that happened that space travel might become mundane anyway?
1: Yeah. So in the book, i mentioned that there's, there's two paths, right? One is that it could become like airlines and you just want to get your flight over with. Mm. And so I, myself, I still love looking out the window Me on a too. plane and seeing the view, but I really do just want to get that flight over with. So it really could become just like that.
0: Interesting. Okay, cool. Um, Laura, any closing thoughts, closing words on space tourism on the book?
1: Well, you can buy the book uh, on Amazon or if you go mm-hmm. to astrolytical.com, you can get an autographed copy. Also, I'm creating a, a course along with the book. So if you um, want to go to astrolytical.com, you can pre-register for the course. It's called Prepare to Become Offworldly and it's mm-hmm. very interactive. So at the end of uh, a lot of the chapters of the book, I give suggestions on how you might prepare. And the course is going to go into that even deeper of how you're going to prepare for your future space flight, whether you know the data of that future spaceflight or whether that's sometime in the future.
0: Well, it, it, it feels certainly like something that all of these spaceflight companies should uh, throw in as required reading. Um, sort of like, you know, hey, you paid $150,000, you paid $55 million, you, you get a free book for preparation.
1: Hey, I'll even sign it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> there you go. Laura, thank you so much. And, you know, I, I hope you and I um, a few years from now we'll have a chance to go and we'll see how our experience was.
1: I look forward to flying with you, Raphael. Thanks so much.
0: <laughs> Thanks, Laura. Well, that's it for another nominal episode of the space business podcast if you like this podcast please consider giving it a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform such as itunes you can follow us on twitter at podcast underscore space also consider supporting us at www.patreon.com forward slash space business podcast if the podcast got you interested in learning more about the business opportunities in the space economy Check out my new online course on space entrepreneurship on udemy.com. The link is in the episode description. Lastly, if you have any feedback, including ideas for guests, and that may include yourself if you have an exciting space story to tell or are interested in being a sponsor, drop us an email at spacebusinesspodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. I look forward to seeing you for the next episode.